Atamaria, welcome to First Up. It is Rapa. That's Wednesday, the 3rd of August. Coming up, reaction from the Middle East to the killing of Al Qaeda's leader Ayman al Zawahiri. Uh, we'll have the latest on our Commonwealth Games competitors as they're just sweeping up the medals. In fact, uh, former national swimming coach Mark Bone with us too, explaining why our athletes feel a bit unsupported by the current funding system. And we speak to journalist and author Mohammed Hassan about dealing with the stigma that Muslim people face in this country. I got stopped when I was in New Zealand, for example, at Auckland Airport. That was three hours having every item in my bag taken out and then being questioned extensively. This is an overwhelming experience for a lot of Muslims. Maria, everybody, and welcome to First Up. We're going to be quite Australia-heavy just at the start of the show. We're going to begin now actually speaking about the dire shortage of teachers, which has pushed the federal government to consider radical reforms to get more people to take up the profession or to stay in it for longer. So under the plan, which is going to be tabled at an emergency meeting next week, senior teachers could get a 40% pay rise. Wow. While professionals in other industries who want to retain, uh, want to retrain to be teachers could get paid internships. The ABC's Stephanie Smale has more. With more children at school than ever before, but fewer people lining up to become teachers, the Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, says it's time for a shake-up. It's serious uh, and it's getting worse. It's not just because of the flu, it's not just because of COVID, it's bigger than that. The shortage has prompted plans for a major overhaul, including offering paid teaching internships to professionals in industries like law or accounting who are doing a two-year master's degree in education. It's a good idea to get people who are already in the workforce, mid-career professionals, to make the switch to the classroom, Uh, whether they're mathematicians or scientists or lawyers or, God forbid, politicians. If you can get people who have got qualifications to jump into the classroom, then that's a good thing. How would you decide who could get that paid internship, which careers applied? It could be any. What you want is professional, well-trained teachers in the classroom. But certainly we have a chronic shortage of maths teachers, and science teachers in our high schools. That's where the shortage is most acute. And that's why in the election campaign, we talked about mathematicians and scientists as the sort of people that we'd we'd love to see make the switch. The paid internship is one of the suggestions that will be flagged at an emergency workforce summit with federal, state and territory education ministers. Another is creating more so-called master teacher or senior teaching positions and awarding them a 40% wage boost. Jason Clare admits that's a major shift but says it's up for discussion. One thing is certain, we're not going to fix this problem by just doing the same thing time after time. We've got to look for new ideas that are going to help to not just fix the shortage of teachers but also raise the performance of our kids. We want our kids to get the best possible education they can. This all sounds expensive. So how much of the cost will state and territory governments have to bear? Well, the only way we fix this is if state governments and federal governments work together. The Australian Education Union Deputy President Meredith Peace says people with experience in other careers can really benefit students, so the paid internship plan could work. But we must ensure that we don't undermine the quality 
uh, of our graduates coming into the system. She's less sure about the idea of master teachers with big pay rises, arguing a wage rise for all teachers would be fairer. I don't think it's a solution to pick out a small group of people and suggest we're going to give them significant pay increases. This is a much more complex issue than that. We do need to have proper career structures that reward people uh, and high-performing teachers, if you like, or people who want to stay in the classroom and use that skill to ensure our kids get the best education. But this is about our career structure and providing decent salaries, if you like, across the board. That's Meredith Peace ending that report from the ABC's Stephanie Smale. It's 10 past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. We're going to stay in Australia now. The new Labor government is proposing enshrining an Indigenous voice in Parliament and a Commonwealth Games love triangle. How about that? Uh, that's leading the news uh, in Australia. Joining us from Brisbane is our friend Pam Corkery. Morena, Pam, how are you? Morena, you're my friend. Thank you. <laughs> hey, um, tell me this. What, what is the Prime Minister, uh, Anthony Albanese, what's he proposing and why does he need? Uh, why does there need to be a referendum on it? Okay, there needs to be a referendum on it because... Um, <laughs> Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders aren't included in the Constitution. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're not mentioned. They weren't counted as people, right? No, no. Well, let's not forget it. It it was in the late 1960s that Aboriginal people were first included in the census and first acknowledged as Australian citizens. So walk before you run, kind of thing. Um, You know, I mean, it's stunning, isn't it? but the mere fact of holding this referendum is really important. It's a, it's a definitive expression of the will of the Australian people. So, you know, well, fingers crossed that the majority go for this inclusion of the Indigenous voice to Parliament, which will be done under legislation. So does, does that, that make sense? Do, yeah. Does, yeah, well that, does that mean that there'll be um, dedicated seats for Indigenous people there? No, silly. Go back to walk before you run. Okay. No. okay. <laughs> what it what it does mean is there'll be a body um, that advises Parliament um, on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander situations. They can make representations to Parliament and to the executive, and Parliament shall then, subject to this constitution, have powers to make laws with respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Now, I know that sounds waffly, but it is a, it's a huge step. Mm. And, you know, the world doesn't realise how racist Australia is, you yeah. know. It, well, I mean, it I think doesn't have a great history, does it, too. Just tidy it up. Yeah. But I, Anthony Albanese is very sincere. He said the referendum is a high hurdle to clear. We recognise the risks of failure, but we also recognise the risk of failing to try. Yeah, yeah. And and look, yeah. I mean, just even being mentioned in something like this would mean the world to a lot of people there involved in it and the Indigenous uh, population. So uh, we will keep our eye on that. Now, Neighbours yeah. has wrapped up on the TV, but Australians still have a love uh-huh. triangle on TV, or do they? Tell us about the Commonwealth Games' Kyle Chalmers love triangle story extravaganza. It's like sands through the hourglass. <laughs> now, the Australian swim star Kyle Chambers says media have been using him for clickbait by publishing stories about his former relationship with fellow swim athlete Emma McKeon. Uh, okay, then. The allegation is that, this is from the press, that Chambers snubbed his former girlfriend, Emma McKeon, after they both 
competed in the mixed relay. No, he didn't. We've rewound the footage. He didn't do that. No, but to getting more deeper, now, McKeon, is that how they say a word name? Yes, Anyhow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, is now the partner of Cody Simpson, also um, a gold medal winner in these um, games, um, and he's also a former pop singer. And now they're out being besties. He's got form. Previous girlfriend, his first girlfriend was Kylie Jenner, and then after that, Miley Cyrus and Gigi Hadid. He's a a leading um, lady kind of of guy, isn't he? Yeah, he gets around. And also, he's just put out an album this year while training. So, anyhow, Kylie Boohoo-Hoo Chalmers says he feels victimised and he almost quit this week because he said it was a media smear campaign and he was portrayed as a jilted lover. I mean, he's been as annoying as the press. (laughs) (laughs) and you know when you see the guy with the big tattoo across his chest of the bald eagle or whatever looking all tough and you go get a grip man (laughs) one person's opinion yeah well no we're just sick of looking at the middle table at the top New Zealand battling away though in third doing very well hey Tim now you you spoke to us about the mayor of um, Redland Karen Williams a few weeks back so what's been happening when she's been caught drink driving what have they ordered her to do yeah, a quick update. Um, she's been ordered to do community service. The judge said she'd like to see um, that because it would be palatable for those who wanted to resign. Um, the judge kind of inferred that people in the area were being harsh on the mayor, but she drove her car across four lanes, shot through a fence and into a tree and was nearly four times over the limit. This campaign to get rid of her is not going away. She has got... Thick skin, Karen Williams, everywhere she goes. There's serious, sober sort of people going, you know, get out of it. And she's, hell no, we won't go. But I just wanted to follow up. She didn't get, she didn't get a charge listed against her. No, well, that's good. And I see, too, the uh, Reserve Bank there in Australia, too, raising interest rates uh, for a fourth month in a row on, on you there, Pam. So um, look out for that one and adjust your budget accordingly. There she is out of Brisbane, Pam Corkery. It is a quarter past five. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radity. We're very keen for your, your feedback here. And uh, we'd like to know this because it's to do with the story coming up later on. But this this may have happened to you as well. Have you ever been pulled aside and questioned at the airport? You know, the random pull aside when they might perhaps go through things. Well, you might get those uh, wonderful words. Can you take off your shoes, please? That's always a good one. Uh, text us 2101 or you can email first up at RNZ. .co.nz. Well, we'll go to the Middle East now, where governments have been reacting to the killing of Al-Qaeda leader Oman al-Zawahiri as a, a, well, as a US drone uh, that uh, struck and blew up his apartment there in Kabul. He'd been living in the apartment in the Afghan capital since at least the beginning of this year. And joining me now is our correspondent, Alex Baird. Morena, Alex, I imagine this is quite monumental uh, in the Middle Eastern world. Tell us about some of the reaction. Yeah, so the first country to actually come out and say, you know, good job, was Saudi Arabia. Obviously, the Americans are tooting their own horn. The Canadians also have said that this is a, a good job. The, the Taliban, the, who are now the Afghan government, in effect, not so happy about this, to be honest, because um, it was interesting. You said he was living in an apartment in the Afghan capital in Kabul. Now, he was not just living in an apartment. He was living in a house owned by one of the senior Taliban members in the Afghan government. And it was in central Kabul at the same time. So the Americans took a bit of a risk here. If you imagine, you know, going into central Wellington with a drone and firing a couple of projectiles at a, an apartment building while you, the guy you're targeting standing on a balcony. 
I mean, they're very lucky that no one else died here. But Biden was saying that it was, you know, it was, it was trying to be very careful that he didn't kill any other civilians. But in most of the West, there's been a kind of resounding, you know, round of applause to this. But for the Afghan Taliban, not so much. So what's the Taliban explanation then? If they, what, did they know that he was there? Why, why was he being given protection in Kabul by them? Yeah, so they 100% knew he was there um, and were indeed facilitating him being there. Um, the Americans, the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has said this is a gross violation of the Doha Agreement. Now, this was an agreement that was made before the Taliban fully took over Afghanistan. Basically, the Taliban agreed to American demands that they would not allow Afghanistan to become a centre for terrorist activities again. And it doesn't really look like they've stuck to their end, their side of the Biden, uh, bargain. Rather, When Biden spoke earlier, he said that there's no way that, that America is going to allow Afghanistan to become a hotbed of, quote, terrorism once again. The Taliban, though, have, have said um, they've condemned this attack, saying that it undermines international principles. But if your international principles include allowing a, a known leader of a terror group that bombed the um, Twin Towers, I don't know what kind of international principles you're talking about, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we had a journalist here who was telling us how wonderful they were a few months ago. Never mind. Um, let's move to Iraq now. So I see there, when you've got no government for, uh, there for what the last 10 months, people get a bit upset. Protesters have resumed their occupation of Iraq's parliament. Yeah, so this has been basically ongoing saga, the largest political bloc. In Iraq's parliament, all the the people who have voted into parliament all resigned en masse. So there's just been this kind of floundering about ten months without um, without a government. Uh, supporters of that largest political group have now stormed the parliament building not once but twice, and are now staging a sit-in there. Um, the whole problem is that you know this is all well and good, but there's still no path out of this political deadlock. And people are fed up, you know. You can imagine what it would be like to not have a government for 10 months. Practically paralyzes most things. So it'll be interesting to see if this new form of pressure in the form of stalling, storing, storming rather the parliament will come to anything. You, we saw in Sri Lanka that it worked. So uh, this is a bit of a wait and see. Yeah, they're all carrying on like it's Washington, D.C., just going storming Parliament. Uh, we move next door from Iraq to Iran. Um, tell me about this. They reckon they could build a nuclear bomb, but but they won't yet. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's the, the operative word, isn't it? Um, basically, the uh, Iran's atomic energy chief has come out and said, you know, we have the ability to build a nuclear weapon right now, but don't worry, we're not planning to. But we all kind of knew that this was in the works, but we didn't know that Iran was this close to being able to produce a nuclear weapon. I think that really this statement is a threat to the Americans saying, you know, don't muck around with us too much because we can do this. This is all coming at the at the same time in the background where having desperate attempts to get the 2015 Iran nuclear deal back on track. Now, that nuclear deal was basically an agreement by a number of parties in the West and Iran that Iran would step back on this quest for a nuclear weapon and in return the West would uh, drop a number of sanctions. But with Iran saying, you know, we're pretty, we're able to do this already, but don't worry, we won't. I don't know how well that bodes for getting this deal back on track. Yeah. Alex, thank you very much. Uh, There is our correspondent in the Middle East, Alex Baird, who uh, joins us every week. 
21 minutes past five, I'm Nathan Radadet. You are listening to First Up here on RNZ National. So uh, coming up, we're going to be a little bit sporty in amongst things this morning. Felicity Reid is there in Birmingham, so we can catch up with what's going on at the Com Games. And uh, we're going to zero in a little bit more into the pool there. Former national coach Mark Bone joins us to discuss this current crop of medal-winning swimmers. What is the sexiest fruit in the world? Is it a tempting tomato? A proud banana? Kumquat. Contender for that title is up for grabs this week on Trade Me. Producer Jeremy Parkinson talked with Ruby Topsend about Phoebe, the bootylicious pear. Yes, we have a sexy pair named Phoebe up for grabs for currently sitting at the bargain price of $24 with 15 bids. And we have seen such pairs sell for quite a lot in the past. A couple of years ago, we saw the big booty pair raise $100 for endometriosis NZ charity. So we're still sitting at $24, but there's a few days to go. And we may well see this one climb. It does come with a custom-made G-string, this one. It certainly, it certainly does, and it is a beautiful pair. I mean, if you weren't into sexualizing fruit and vegetables mm. and the like, you would you would say this is a pretty delicious pear at the right time because I know that pears, you can be lulled into a false sense of security with pears and take a bite when they're not quite ready, although there are some people out there that like a crisp pear. I'm yeah. not one of them. It has to be a little bit juicy. This one certainly looks juicy, but not overly so. Yeah, but I mean, you know, give it a couple of days, perhaps some sunlight, and then you might end up with your perfect pair here. And you're raising money for SPCA. You are, and it is a great charity to raise money for. That closes when? Uh, Thursday night, 7.57pm. Wicked, we'll be looking out for that one. Um, From bootylicious pears to some cute animals, we like a cute animal, and nothing cuter than the orangutan baby who's looking at me from the page on Trade Me today. This is raising funds to look after the orangutans, I assume, at the at the Auckland Zoo? That's right, yeah. So we've had a series of, of amazing Auckland Zoo auctions on site, and we always look forward to them when they pop up, and this one is a particularly special one with the chance, the winner gets the chance to help the primate team at Auckland Zoo care for Miller, Charlie and their four-month-old son, Barmy, who is absolutely gorgeous, as you said. Very, very small um, and very cute. This has garnered lots of interest already, which is no surprise. Currently sitting at $2,010 with 46 bids and with a few days to go, not closing until Friday night at 7.31. So pretty special opportunity, great cause to raise money for Worth noting that the minimum age for this one is five years old and and it is for two people. So it's for perhaps a a parent and a child or somebody who wants to meet the the tiniest orangutan at Auckland. (laughs) It's a really cool uh, auction, this one. And uh, yeah, a, a lifetime's experience to see an animal like this. Not exactly in the wilds. It's Western Springs in Auckland, but probably one of the only places um, your average Kiwi will, will get to see an orangutan. So that comes up Friday the 5th, half past seven. And our last auction today is a portrait of Her Majesty the Queen by uh, painter Deb Fabrin. This is the inspiration taken from the 75th Jubilee commercial that was, what's commercial? It was a, a, a short uh, that was produced starring Paddington Bear. That's right. So this is a 
one-off special piece of artwork by Piha based artist Deb Fabrin, like you said. It's a beautiful pencil and watercolour uh, and it is framed as well. It, now, this one's raising money for Eat My Lunch, which is a fabulous charity that gives a lunch to children in schools and also you get a lunch too if, if you buy one. So it's a, it's a wonderful deal. And yeah, I think as the description says, Deb's really captured the Queen's style beautifully. And it's quite a small wee portrait, so it would be quite easy to put in, in lots of spaces. You know, it would fit in, in any house. And currently with nine bids sitting at $500 with a couple of days to go, closing at Thursday, 9pm. And you can see all of these auctions on the f- uh, front page of Tradebee. Yeah, tell us where exactly. That's right. You just scroll down to the cool auction section and you'll see these and lots of other goodies. Something for everyone in there. That was Ruby Top Sand from Tradebee. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Yeah, it's the day of our life. We're called the 3rd of August. Happy birthday to you, Sky Tower. Oh, you light my way like a beacon every morning and I go, why, why are they that? Why is it that colour? But that's what it does. 25 years ago that thing opened. Goodness me. It's uh, birthday time too for some humans. Uh, swimmer Ryan Lochte is 38 t- uh, today. So he's the second most decorated swimmer in Olympic history. And that's uh, when you go measure by the total number of medals. So he's only behind Michael Phelps. Also said to be perhaps the person you least want in your pub quiz team ever. Is that a polite way to say it? Okay, cool. Uh, Michael, uh, he said of uh, himself, Ryan Lochte, I guess you would say I'd be like the Michael Phelps of swimming if he wasn't there. So there you are. Congratulations and happy birthday to you, Ryan Lochte. Tom Brady, uh, NFL quarterback, husband of supermodel person who never seems to age. He's 45 years old. He's going to play another season in the NFL and probably win again. Martin Sheen, of course, born Ramon Estevez, the father of Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen. He's 82 years old. I was reading an article yesterday. says he really regrets uh, turning his back on his name as he was advised to, and he was very happy that Emilio kept Estevez when he acted. And Tony Bennett, still getting it done at 96 years of age. Uh, Congratulations. Happy birthday to you, Tony Bennett. Uh, The NBA was uh, formed on this day in 1949. The Republic of Niger uh, gained its independence from France in 1960. And in the arts and culture desk, a couple of cheesy song happenings. 37 years ago, we built this city, came out by Starship. And the Macarena came out in 1996. The English version that you know, there was a Miami DJ wanted to play it on his radio station. They said, no, it has to be in English. He got it remade and DJ Jumpin' Johnny Caride made a worldwide hit. And that is the day of our life we like to call the 3rd of August. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Joining us now from our business team is Nicholas Pointing. Kia ora, Nicholas. How are you? Good morning. Okay. Um, tell me about the, the falling house prices. I heard Vicky mention it in the news. What do you got there? Yeah, so house prices falling at their fastest rate since the global financial crisis. Fell 0.9% last month, 2.5% in the past three months. That's the largest quarterly fall since the GFC. The average house price still a million dollars, so that may not be uh, music to first home buyers' ears. But I, the thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, we hear about falling house prices. Is it, you know, is it a good thing? The way I tend to think about it is, you know, what does it mean for first home buyers? Yes. But first home buyers' share of the market is about eighteen percent. Oh, that was off. That was off. Um, 
new mortgage lending in the in, in the month of June, and that was from the RBNZ data. About 18% of that went to first home buyers. Compare that with two years ago, about 20% of, of new mortgage lending hmm. went to first home buyers. So first home buyers have actually seen their share of the market actually decline slightly, and that very much is a consequence of rising interest rates. The serviceability costs of a mortgage have now got into, or they've essentially they've doubled, right, where interest rates have gone in the past sort of 18 months to two years. And, and you know, that aspect of it is just going to make it so much harder for first-home buyers to get a foothold in the market because they're now buying it, borrowing rather, at much higher rates. Just looking across the regions, though, um, Wellington's prices down 6.7% over the past quarter. Uh, Christchurch prices also fell there. Um, and we look at some of the places like Palmerston North, They've had persistent falls, um, and 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 so if we look at where everything you know most parts of the country, we saw house prices gain about what twenty five percent in the 20, 2021 year. Mm. Um, Palmerston North, they're nearly back to where they were a year ago because it's one of those regions that had the fastest growth, and it's those parts boom of the towns, country. Eh? The boom towns those are, now, first, are, are now are now the are the slow towns. Yeah, um, that's what's happening to house prices, but. Look, I don't want to get into the. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It's it's such a vexed well, topic, and people are very. Oh yeah. 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 And there's someone who's I'm sure the landlords the, association will find it horrible somehow, oh, and the I'm, buyers association, will go, yeah, okay, but not quite enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, I, I'm not part of the landed gentry, so look, I'm just watching. I'm more interested to see where interest rates go. That's probably. Um, what I need to see before I get yeah. anywhere close to getting into I know a house. friend of ours' daughter was saying, like, yes, it still seems like a lot, but it was, and you know, you hear the business confidence thing, and I don't know what this confidence is, but it was the whole, well, actually, as they're coming down, maybe it now seems worth putting money away to save for, because she mm. beforehand was like, there's no point anyway. But now it seemed like, oh, okay, well, they're coming down a bit. It's shone a bit of a bright light, a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. So whatever that sort of confidence is, it's, mm. I think it's at that now. Maybe you would just call that um, future home owning optimism yes, index. We'll do that. We can call that the yes! first up, first, first home, home, first home ownership first home. optimism index. The uh, well, we've been talking about. We wanted to come up with our own economic indicator. The Fahui. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah on the Fahui index. Spinoff has Thank the cheese index. We've got the, the Fahui. Fahui. There Wonderful. we are. Thank you very much, Nicholas Point, and you can hear more from the business team. Maybe the exciting Fahui uh, is debuted on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Well, your money markets are out there, and they're doing this currently. Your New Zealand dollar will buy you the following. 62.84 US cents, 90.33 Australian cents, 61.61 euro cents, 51.4 British pence, 4.24 yuan, 83.13 Japanese yen, and 57.18 Afghan Afghanis. Well, it is day five of the Commonwealth Games, which seems crazy when you look at our medal hall. Hello, we're hiring extra bags to get them in. Joining us from Birmingham is our Commonwealth Games reporter, uh, who's there. Kia ora, Felicity, how are you? Good, Nathan, I'm good, thank you. Okay. Just standing outside the street, three venue, so it is a little bit loud out here. Okay, okay. So tell me this. Um, the, who's been in action in the last few hours for New Zealand? Well, I've just been inside this venue here in the central city. It's the basketball court out here, and it's been a bit of heartbreak for them after being one of the strongest sides in the competition. The Tawhon and 3x3 team lost to Australia in that bronze medal game just before it was 15-13. The Australians only took the lead with two minutes and two seconds left in the game. So for those remaining eight minutes, the New Zealanders had been ahead, and I was thinking it was looking quite good. 
And Street Street is a bit of a unique one as well. There's a ground announcer on the loudspeaker the whole time during the game, commentating, adding some kind of colour, and he was talking up this trans-Tasman rivalry. But I'm actually sure that these two teams have played each other very often. So, <laughs> yeah. Just, it's but natural. the girls afterwards, it was disappointment for them. Fourth isn't where they wanted to be. No, no, it's not. You know, natural rivalry is what he's going with. Um, any any more medals overnight? Well, yes. And as you were saying, it was uh, day five. And so today is actually in the Commonwealth Games overall, sort of in general. Today is when the most gold medals are given out. But I'll just put a <laughs> provide that there is not what New Zealand got. We got a bronze medal out at the Bowling Greens at Victoria Park, and that was the women's Four with a 17-6 win over Fiji. And in that team, the skip there is Val Smith, who's at a record fifth Commonwealth game. All right. that's I, I like that about bowls. You can really keep your longevity going there as well. Um, now, obviously, COVID uh, is still going on in the world. Um, have not moved on. And I understand it did catch one of our, um, one of our what was it, one of our cyclists that, that uh, got it? Yeah, there is just the one case in the New Zealand team here at the moment, that mountain biker, Anton Cooper. He's the first New Zealand athlete that has tested positive after arriving in the athlete's village. New Zealand has had those two other cases with uh, triathletes, Ainsley Thorpe and basketballer Nico McCulloch, who were unable to come to Birmingham because they returned positive tests before they left. But Cooper tested once he'd actually already been inside the athlete's village. And I was speaking with the New Zealand Chief of Mission, Nigel Avery, earlier, and he was actually just quite impressed with how proactive Cooper had been at putting himself in isolation as soon as there might have been the slightest sign that he was unwell. So none of his other teammates have any symptoms, and I understand that those close to Cooper have returned multiple negative tests. Um, but, yeah, Nigel Avery was saying that New Zealand is facing an uphill battle in this because in the athletes' village in the game venues where... New Zealand's quite strict with the mask wearing for like the athletes, the team officials, like us in the media. We all have to wear masks when we're around for each other, even if we're outside. But other countries haven't been as vigilant. And Avery was saying that that was worrying because they're relying on a bit of a trust model that other nations are doing the right thing. Yeah, that's that sounds awfully familiar in lots of areas, doesn't it? Too. Look, now I know that for a lot of people, any sort of games doesn't start unless there's a 400 meter running track, which looks slightly orange, slightly brown. Tell me this: athletics begin today. Who are our, who are our best prospects? Well, the throwers have actually been the ones that have been up already. That's Maddie Wishy in the shot put. So without Dame Valerie Adams here these games, Maddie's our medal hope. She's qualified with the third best row, so we'll be into the final. And discus thrower Connor Bell is also into the finals. And we have had Zoe Hobbs in the 100 metres on the track already. She finished second in her heat with a time of 11.09 seconds, which gets her into the semi-finals with the fifth fastest time. And in about half an hour, you can look out for the pole vaulters. Uh, that's Olivia Mataggart and Imogen Aris, two Auckland training buddies who will be looking to clear some big heights without Eliza McCartney here. Yeah, and well, let's because I know the McTaggart family. Obviously, I saw her brother weightlifting what a couple of days Damn ago. Him. Yeah, it didn't quite work out for him, but I'm sure he'll. You know, they'll find cutaways of him in the stand clapping, clapping, and things, oh. won't they? I'm sure they will. Isn't that how TV works? Yeah, it is totally. It's what it does. Felicity Reed, thank you so much for your time. This year's uh, outside the very loud basketball. Felicity Reed there in Birmingham. <laughs> Thank you.
It's 20 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarity. You're with First Up here on RNZ National. So between now and 6 o'clock, we've got a couple of things to get to. Uh, veteran swimming coach Mark Bone is going to be with us live. Look, we're winning a lot of medals in the pool. Now it's the thing of, OK, what about the funding to compete consistently with the likes of Australia and the USA? Massive money machine, huge budget campaigns to try and keep up with for the Olympics. Um, but it looks like we've got swimmers there that, that do have the ability. So how do we convert that into success? Also, we're going to hear from journalist and author Mohammed Hassan about dealing with the stigma as of uh, travel and all sorts and being a Muslim in New Zealand. The exciting hi-hat symbol. They let you know we're going to speak to the professionals of the RNZ team from Morning Report. It is Corin Dan who's with me right now. Kia ora Corin, how are you? Kia ora, good morning, very well. Uh, yes, busy show this morning. We'll take I'll a bet. deep dive into the economy in some ways. Obviously, you were talking about house prices earlier with Nikos. We will also look at that with that uh, fastest pace since pretty much mm. the global financial crisis. You can use the Fahui. You can use the, the Fahui, the Fahui it... index if you like. Yeah, yeah I'll give it a go. I mean, we'll see. We'll see how uh, core logic like that one. They, yeah. they're, they're big on the uh, the indexes and, and things. Uh, the unemployment rate's out today too, and it could. Some people are thinking it'll go below three percent. Unbelievable, two point eight percent. It's a very strange time economically to have such low unemployment but mm. with uh, rising interest rates and inflation uh, on the go as well. So there's lots to get through there. Christopher Luxon uh, is in to talk the National Party leader for his weekly catch-up. We will also focus too on the developing international story, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. This is a significant visit. Chinese are not happy. Uh, we'll hear more about this and what the implications could be. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Corin Dan. And of course, morning report happening after six. Well, Mohammed Hassan is an award-winning RNZ journalist, poet and author who says that international travel is still a logistical nightmare for millions of Muslims who, like him, have to prepare in advance because they are often subject to what authorities refer to as random checks. Uh, in his latest book, How to Be a Bad Muslim, Mohammed is telling his own story about such experiences and he's speaking at the Auckland Writers' Festival at the end of August. And I I asked him about being profiled at airports. It could be uh, a range of anything that starts from, uh, you know, a, a, an extra pad down all the way through to, in the case of the United States, getting uh, four S's stamped on my passport, which means that I get uh, essentially thrown into a special screening room with a whole bunch of other people that are uh, less fortunate like myself. And you can spend hours inside. First time that I got stopped when I was in New Zealand, for example, at Auckland Airport, uh, that was three hours basically sitting on the side of, uh, of, of the, the exit and having every piece of clothing, every item in my bag taken out, my phone scanned, my, pass, my laptop scanned, all the documents taken out, and then being questioned about my travel itinerary uh, extensively. So that, that is basically the experience of not only myself, but, but a lot of people predominantly, you know, obviously it's not just Muslims, but this is an overwhelming experience for a lot of Muslims. You know, Mohammed, I was going to ask you about that because I had a case where I had a, a good run of about two or three years where uh, my hair was a bit longer than it is now and my beard was a lot blacker than it is now because I'm old. Uh, <laughs> and I found that I used to get picked quite often, you know, just for random checks. And I would look at people in the line and think, how come everyone in here looks like me? Do you find that a lot when you found yourself in these? You know, I, I tell the story about when, uh, when I was stopped at LAX and I was taking into a room that was uh, probably full of about 50 people. Hmm. And maybe a third of them were, were of Arab 
background. Another third were of Latin American background and a couple of people from East Asia. And then there was one bewildered white guy, and he was the only person in the room that didn't know why he was there. <laughs> How um, awkward for him. So yeah, I mean, like every once in a while, there is somebody that's genuinely randomly stopped. But it's it's hard to prove a racial profiling when it comes to places like the airport. Certainly the government says it doesn't exist. The Ministry of Customs says it doesn't exist, and they've always maintained that. But anecdotal experiences tell you otherwise. And then when you start collecting information from the rest of the community and start doing interviews, you realize this is actually a very widespread experience. You know, what normally happens is you either get home and you say to your partner or whatever, it could bloody happen again. Or, or maybe people might go, right, I'm going to go to Facebook. You decided, no, I'm going full book with this. Why? I think it was something that it was happening so many times and it was really linked to some of the work that I had done back when I was at RNZ, talking to people in the community. And some of these people, they were so frustrated and they didn't know where to turn. Some of them were telling me that they were getting stopped and searched and questioned every single time they would return to the country. And there were some cases where that involved, you know, mothers that were traveling with children by themselves that w- that had to wait for hours. The really um, frustrating thing is, is that it's really hard to know what your rights are when you're in a place like that. The rules themselves are kind of vague. They do give customs officers quite a lot of uh, leeway. I got stopped in 2018. But back at that time, you know, my parents were waiting to pick me up for three hours and I wasn't allowed to pick up my phone. I was told explicitly that I couldn't answer this phone. And so this is kind of an experience that I really wanted to document because I think it captures, you know, in the post 9-11 era over the last 20 years, this real difference in the way people experience those spaces like airports. And increasingly, that's become something that divides the way people prepare when they go to travel and things that they take into account. I know some people that that would go to an airport three hours early, just be, or three or four hours earlier than they normally would because they're expecting something to happen. They're expecting to get stopped or pulled aside and they don't want to risk missing their flight. So I'm looking here, Mohammed Hassan. Have you thought if you changed your name on your passport to perhaps say Morris Hansen, do you think it would be an easier trip through customs for you? You know what, Nathan, every single time that I, I'm in one of these places, that is the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> and if I change my name, then all of my problems will go away seemingly. My name is, is pretty damning. It's pretty, uh, it, it, it makes me instantly uh, a target as a result. Yeah. But it's also a case where um, is that really the solution? Is, it, is, it, is, is trying to be less Muslim in those spaces the way out or the only way to be able to address these things? And I think it's not. I think that the first point of recourse is for bodies like the Customs Ministry here or, or the TSA in the U.S. and, and in other places to really acknowledge the fact that this is not only something that happens, but it is something that negatively affects the experience of, of millions of travellers um, around the world. March 15th, 2019, what what did that do, I guess, do for you? So this is something that, is, that really had reverberations around the world. But within New Zealand, it's really hard to be able to encapsulate what it meant in the days and weeks and months following from those attacks what it meant to have to go to your uh, prayer space and be looking over your shoulder to feel a kind of triggered some way with the sight of a police car stationed outside of, of your mosque that's there to protect you, but it's just a constant reminder that threats 
hasn't really disappeared. And of course, if we're honest with ourselves, we understand the fact that this wasn't a singular incident. This wasn't a singular person. And there are other people that have these views and have the potential to be able to act on them. And the real question is, is that what have we learned from the World Commission? What have we learned from the way that we have operated sometimes blindly to the complaints that we had from the Muslim community, from other communities about racial discrimination, about the rise of the far right, and about the need for real government bodies, and even things as simple as as, uh, hate crime statistics collected by the police. We need these things to make us feel like we have avenues to speak. And I feel that those are the kind of questions we really should be asking ourselves. What actionable steps have we taken as a country since March 15th? Yeah, you can catch Mohammed Hassan uh, or Morris Hansen uh, on uh, August the 27th as part of the Auckland Writers Festival too, and it should be a fascinating talk. Well, it's eight to six. The Commonwealth Games have been a huge success so far for New Zealand swimmers. How good is it to see Lewis Clearbert uh, becoming not just a gold medalist, a double gold medalist. There's probably more in him by the looks of it too. Backstroker Andrew Jeffcoat there claiming gold in the 50-metre event. Fellow sprinter Cameron Gray taking it out, of course, uh, in the 50-metre butterfly. And, of course, Sophie Pascoe has been getting it done uh, as well for years. Now, despite the success, uh, Clearbert's coach, Gary Hollywood, says they don't know if they're going to be able to fund a top Olympic program that would enable our swimmers to be competitive with the likes of Australia. So joining us to explain how that funding works for our elite sports people and also, too, to have a look at what I think is a pretty exciting time if you're uh, one of the swimming nerd folk like myself, uh, is, uh, of course, former New Zealand swim coach. He is Mark Bone, who's with me right now. Kia ora, sir. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. It's uh, been a fantastic Commonwealth Games. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So, just let's just get to this funding thing first, and, and we'll get a bit of celebrating there too. So, when Gary Hollywood says he's not sure about the ability to be able to fund a top program against the Australians and the Americans, is it realistic? Because their budgets and their systems under there are huge. So, what would be something that could help us? There's no doubting a lot of money thrown at any sport is going to help a sport, but at the same time you need bricks and mortar, and I think that's probably the most important thing at the moment. In uh, Wellington, where the likes of Lewis Clearbird has been coached with uh, Gary Hollingwood, he doesn't have access to a 50-metre pool all the time. They've got a beautiful 50-metre complex down there, but it's always put in 25 metres, so the bulkhead is moved, so you don't get the ability to train in a a 50-metre pool, which you need to be able to swim that 400 IM as competently as what Lewis is currently showing. And to be able to train in that all the time, it works a different physiology when you start swimming in a 50 metre pool. Yeah, because I mean, obviously the 25s is, you know, 25s and 33s you can swim in sometimes as well. So you're doing a lot more of your turn. You don't really get to stretch out. So that actually makes his ability in the 50 metre pool even more remarkable, doesn't it? Yeah, look, absolutely it does. But you've got to remember that uh, they've been away in a training camp. They went to the World Championships in Budapest beforehand. And uh, that was a tremendous build-up for this New Zealand team. And then they had a a very, very good training camp over in Spain in 50-metre pool for a month. And that, I think, has definitely helped all of this New Zealand team. And obviously there's a good uh, culture amongst the team as well. Mm. I, I remember seeing Daniel Loder at the Helberg Awards one year and he was being interviewed and they said, oh, it must be great to still have the records. And he went, no, people should be beating them by now. And I know that Matt Stanley came along and he looked like, like I thought, oh, here we go. We've got a, a world-class one here. But when I, I get very excited, I've been boring my wife, Mark, by just going, we've got one. Look, that's we've got one of those world champion ones right there. Why is Lewis Clearbert? Can you explain to us why is he so good? 
Look, he's got a big ticket, and I think that we've just watched him develop over the years. He's taken a period where he actually went, I'm sick of looking up and down a black lane for a period. He went into surf life-saving, and I think when you go Mm. into surf, it knocks you around a little bit, Uh, obviously, and you're swimming in the ocean, and then he's come back into the pool. He's got a tremendous relationship with his coach, and I think that's imperative as well. And they've got a very good program down in Wellington. But he's got a very big ticker, and I think technically he's extremely good in four disciplines, butterfly backstroke, now developing very well in breaststroke and a very strong freestyle because he actually holds the New Zealand record in the 100 freestyle. So he actually has worked very hard in his uh, other strokes. Is there an entire team coming through that you look at and you think, do you know what, we've got others that could be as successful? Or is it a case where you do have high-level athletes, but every now and then you get a Daniel Loder? And is, you know, is, is he just kind of one of those exceptions? Look, sadly, I think that, that is, the latter is the case, that he is one of those exceptions. There's some very good talent. I mean, you look at Cameron Gray, who got third in the 50 metres butterfly, uh, albeit that it was just on a magnificent touch in the end, but he's only 18 years of age, swims out of Auckland, uh, and, and but he's on a loan at the moment. He's the only one from that programme that's come through to the Commonwealth Games. Andrew Jeffcoat, the only one in his programme that's uh, that's at these Commonwealth Games, and of course we saw him win the 50 metres backstroke. You've got the likes of Erica Fairweather who swims out of Dunedin. She's the only one in her programme. So they're one-offs around the country as opposed to coming together as a group. And I think when we see them come together as a group, you often get gelling off one another. And of course, you throw in the likes of our para-athletes in there with with definitely Sophie Pascoe, all of her experience, her culture, uh, just what she can offer for the team. You know, she really is the camp mother uh, within that and and thoroughly enjoying her time uh, in the sport right now. So would you hope then that we can get them together for camps more often? I'd like to see them get together for camps and also get together to actually race together, whether it be here in New Zealand, take them around a couple of events, get them around the country. Look, they'll come back. They're cold heroes now. People know their names. Take them around the country and get them to race in all of the various centres or regularly go over to Australia and race over in Australia. It's only across the ditch, for goodness sakes, and we've got to use it more. Yeah, we do. Mark Bone, thank you very much for your time. Uh, again, so there is the uh, Swimming New Zealand coach, Mark Bone. Very, very good teacher too, that man. Well, um, finally, a lot of feedback coming in. We were talking about um, uh, check- checks at the airport. Here's another one. My ex was asked to remove his pants at customs and immigration. He was, com- oh, he was commando, goodness. Uh, John in Queenstown says, Nathan, do not carry a guitar or you'll be off to aisle C and your entire pack contents tipped into a white sheet, including the dust. To be fair, they only found a tea bag and <laughs> flagged the duty on my amp as Contra. Joe the Roaster says, after being renamed by a tribal customs ceremony of Brotherhood in Vanuatu when landing in Auckland Airport, the two feathered adorned spears were definitely a rare flag for border control that's one of many coffee hinting stories yes Joe the roaster of course he was up there doing the roasting uh, gutted for Anton Cooper testing positive for COVID he's a previous Commonwealth gold medal winner uh, in uh, mountain biking as well here's another one there isn't any racial profiling at the border there is profiling based on where people have travelled from or through because there is very clear relationship between this and security and crime threats uh, lots of stuff coming in thank you very much for your feedback you can listen to this episode again because you'd love it uh, by downloading first up the podcast Morning Report is Next with Guyon and Corin. Uh, from all of us here at First Up, we'll be back in your ears. Up, up, up.